We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. With Tony Wilson. Hello, welcome to the Speakola podcast. I am Tony Wilson and a big Christmas greeting to everyone. And it is a bit of a different episode. I haven't got the usual feature speech. Instead, I just wanted to acknowledge some of the great guests we've had this year. And it started back in February and that was Nellie Thomas giving a speech for her great friend, a eulogy for Stella Young the disability activist and comedian, and Nellie Thomas was a great guest, and her stuff is available if you're looking for Christmas presents, nellythomas.com, and she sells a book called Some Moms, or Some Mums, and it is a hilarious take on a picture book. She's done picture books for neurodiverse kids, some girls, some boys, some brains. Well, Some Mums is a great follow-up, so look that one up, and thank you, Nellie. Also, thank you, Claiborne Carson, Dr. Claiborne Carson from the Martin Luther King Center. Loved your episode as well, Dr. Carson. We featured the I Have a Dream speech. Then a very popular episode, one that many people have commented upon to me, uh, Rob Carlton, the actor, director, Australian writer, raconteur. Rob gave a speech about a stick at a show-and-tell for grown-ups event, and Rob Carlton told that story amazingly, a very emotional story about a, a cot death that rocked his family back in the early 70s. We had Neil Kinnock on. I don't think we've had a more high-profile guest. Neil Kinnock, of course, the leader of the UK Labour Party through the Thatcher era for a decade, and Neil Kinnock told the story of his I Warn You speech, as well as the one he delivered at the Labour Party conference in 1985. Great episode, Neil. Thank you. Simon Hill was next. Simon Hill, the football commentator, who was looking for a job at the time. We were worried we were going to lose him to overseas, but fortunately... Foxtel lost the rights to the A-League, which they were butchering. And the good news is that Paramount Plus has taken over. Andrea was the next guest. She is a Myanmar dissident. She made her way to Australia after the coup in February of this year. And she talked about Jomo Tun's speech at the UN, a, a brave and emotional speech that he delivered Uh, condemning the coup and asking for the international community to support the protest movement. Lenore Coltart, historian Lenore Coltart, was our next guest, and I loved her episode. Lenore was writing a book about Jessie Street, and I wanted to talk about Jessie Street because her 
Is It to Be Back to the Kitchen speech is one of my favourites. It's a, it's a landmark feminist speech in Australian history delivered just towards the end of the war and asking the question whether Australian women would be forced to resume pre-war roles uh, instead of the important wartime work they had been doing. Stephen Mills was a guest. Thank you, Stephen. He was a speechwriter to Bob Hawke and was the person who penned the Tiananmen Square response speech, a very famous speech and an emotional speech again. Gabrielle Sterling was our next episode, another international, this time a Georgia resident over in the United States. And and Gabrielle Sterling was the person who stood on the steps of the Georgia legislature and condemned Donald Trump for the damage the, the big lie was causing about the election being a stolen election. And it was a brave and passionate and angry speech and a great episode as well. Loved speaking to Gabrielle. We had Emily Rowe on, hat maker Emily Rowe, but also grief coach. And Emily talked about the eulogy that she delivered for her husband, Matthew Carney, the artist Matthew Carney, who died in 2011. And Emily talked through the writing of that eulogy, and it was a it was a beautiful episode. And Emily's business is called the Good Grief Coach. You can look her up. She lives in Southern Queensland. We had Julian Lisa on MP, member for Barara, talking about his maiden speech. Thank you, Julian. We had Martin Flanagan on, and we're about to hear a bit more from Martin. But Martin was our most popular episode for the year. And he talked about his speech thinking about you, Ron Barassi, a monologue delivered in 2018 for the Melbourne Football Club. John Safran came on. Thank you, John, my old friend, my triple R compadre. And John Safran spoke about unsmoking the world and unpicked the Philip Morris CEO's corporate spin. And John's book is incredible. Buy a copy for Christmas if you can. It's called Puff Piece, published by Penguin Books. Look that up at johnsaffron.com. Thank you, Isra Muhammad, easily our youngest guest this year, just 21 years of age. And Isra talked about her speech delivered at just 15 years of age, which was her speech at the Kenton School in Newcastle, where she was a student. Great episode, Isra, and lovely to chat to you across oceans. And finally, our final regular episode for the year was Adam Elliott and his speech at the Academy Awards in 2004. We've had an Oscar winner at last, and what a great chat that was. Less speechy and more Oscar-y than anything, but one of my favourite episodes for the year and always a pleasure to catch up with Adam Elliott. So that's the roll call of guests on Speakola this year. I hope you've enjoyed them as much as I did and you can support me in this great endeavour, this speechly project. Uh, we've got a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Speakola. And also, there's been many kind donors this year as well, and I appreciate every one of you at speakola.com forward slash donate. Thank you to our sponsors this year. We've had the podcast reader, podread.org. That is a place where long-form podcasts are put into transcript form, and there's an opportunity to read them and really engage with the content of the long-form podcast. They've had four editions so far. Check it out, podread.org forward slash speakola, offer code speakola. 
And thank you, as always, to Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados as well. Greenskinavocados.com. As I said, this is a different episode. I'm not going to do an interview as such about a particular speech and then play the speech, so we're messing around with the format. But I do have something for you because I got a call during the week from Martin Flanagan saying that he wrote something this year and he really liked it and he wanted to read it. And he said, could I read it for you? Because I like your speak all thing. And I said, yes, Martin, you actually were our most popular guest this year. And so I'd love to have you back on. And so we're doing this. Martin's about to read a piece for us and I'm about to play it. Well, we've had 14 guests on the Speakola podcast this year, and the most listened to episode belongs to, drumroll, Martin Flanagan of, I think it's Launceston in Tasmania. Martin, congratulations. You are our podcast guest of the year. Well, I haven't got a big track record of winning things, mate, so uh, I'm very happy to, um, to, to acknowledge this. Well, it's very exciting. I believe we're checking in with you not just because we're having random award ceremonies. We're checking in with you because I believe you've got a bit of an offering for us. Can you explain it? Well, I I had an experience this year which I wrote about and I I felt good writing about it and a lot of people seem to enjoy it. And um, it's a story of hope and renewal that is attuned to to these difficult days that we find ourselves in. So I thought I'd like to send it out as a... Christmas podcast, and I'd like to dedicate it to my friend Gordon Cuff, who's one of the principal characters in the story. Well, this story first appeared on the website Footyology. It's a it's a beauty, and far away, Martin. Okay, thanks, mate. The Tasmanian University Football Club were the reigning amateur state premiers when I arrived in early 1972. They had some very good players, and they had people like me who had no great gift for the game, but were enthusiastic about playing it. Last weekend, seven of us gathered in Tasmania's Tarkine Wilderness at a site where a mining company, predominantly owned by Chinese interests, proposes building a dam to serve as a last resting place for its industrial waste. Five of us were issued with notices by the police saying that if we returned to the area within 14 days, we would be arrested. It all started with Gordon Cuff. Two weeks ago, he and his wife, Susie Orlick, blocked the road to the dam site by chaining themselves to a gate. Arrested and charged, they are now out on bail. Gordon, also known as Gordy, was a much better footballer than I was, but we always got on. If we had gone to school together, we would have been made to sit apart. There's an energy between us of the sort that leads young men to form rock bands. In 1979, Gordy was runner-up for the Hexsmith Medal, then one of the three major individual awards in Tasmanian footy. Carlton flew him over for a practice match, but threw him back for being too small. He played in the Launceston Cricket Club team that included state players. As a schoolboy, he also showed promise as a diver. His grandfather, Leonard Acuff, Captain New Zealand at cricket before World War I and represented the country internationally as an athlete. At uni, I played with Gordon's older brother, Len. Len Cuff went beyond brave. Let's be frank. 
the game back then was violent. When a Melbourne academic once asked me how long it took me to see through Marxism, I replied, one quarter of playing Clermont at Clermont. That's when I perceived that however much we identif might identify with the working class, there was no guarantee that the working class would identify with us. We were students. This was the era of the Vietnam War. Students were protesting the war. We played working class clubs that had players related to young men fighting and dying in Vietnam. One of our very best players, Greg Rundle, was Tasmania's first conscientious objector. Each week they came for him. Yet this was also the theatre in which Lenkuff chose to perform. He played in state teams, but his fearless method of play meant he kept smashing parts of his body. In one of his damaged phases, he played with me in the lower grades. Essentially, Len was a clown who played the game at several different levels at once, starting dialogues and exchanges with opponents that the rest of us feared. Len had fun out there. One of the things I loved about the uni footy club was the range of characters it contained. Now seven of us are back together, having seen little of one another for 40-odd years. Two of them, I am pretty sure are or have been Liberals. Gordy Cuff's wife, Susie Orlick, is a small woman with a big personality and a quick wit, the sort that keeps you on your toes. Once Gordy and Susie were arrested, I knew I was going to have to do something, but didn't know what. Next thing I knew, Gordy had organised six old uni players, his brother Len among them, to go down the Tarquan with him. The big news was that Ozzy was coming. Ozzy was the club captain when I arrived at the club, aged 17 years and one month, eager and impressionable and up for a good time. I had long hair and used to run laps barefooted because I got energy from the earth. The first night at training, we were called into the centre of the ground by senior coach Brian Ede. Spying me and my bare feet on the edge of the circle, he cried out, What the fuck have I got here? I became the club bard. Ozzy said I was dangerous with words. I wanted to be dangerous with words like he was dangerous with the ball as he came out of the centre making the play. Ozzy was an All-Australian amateur. He was quick, balanced. He had a short, light step, could break left or right. He played in the centre and commanded the field. Geelong and Richmond flew him over for practice matches, but he was in love with the girl he would marry, and she was in Hobart. My first game with uni, my first game of men's footy, was in the thirds. I played well, surprisingly so. That night in the club room, I made my way through the crush at the bar to get a beer, and there was Aussie working as a volunteer barman, and I had my first lesson in the ethic of this football club. As he poured my beer, Aussie, real name Terry Owens, said in a warm, encouraging way, you played well today. I felt, as they say, ten feet tall. Aussie's a businessman who lives where he's always lived, Penguin on the northwest coast. I'm surprised he's coming, but delighted. Ozzy was a big part of my introduction to a club that was part of my life for the seven years between leaving school and leaving Tasmania to travel the world. Spook was coming too. He is called Spook because of some wildly successful seances he conducted in his student days in which strange lights appeared and material objects were said to leap around the room. Bespectacled, well-read and deliberate in manner, Spook's real name is Gerard Leary. As a footballer, he was dark, compact and swift. He played senior football with both Alveston and Clarence 
before a chronic shoulder injury relegated him to the lower levels with the likes of me, where he cannonballed through packs and played one-handed. Steve Smith was also coming. An elegant and thoughtful footballer who could think very quickly, Smithy played in three state premierships with uni, as well as playing for Launceston in the grand final, where they lost to City South, then the best team in Tasmania. Smithy spent a year of his life in the highlands of Tasmania looking for the thylacine, and more recently managed to keep the program aimed at saving the threatened Tasmanian devil alive. The bail document from when he was arrested during the Franklin River campaign in the 1980s hangs proudly on his bedroom wall. A doctor of zoology, Steve Smith is a highly intelligent man who thinks and lives independently. The sixth member of the group was Basil O'Halloran. His real name is Paul, but his father was Basil, so he's Basil. We went to school with, together. He was gentle and good at sport, and notwithstanding the fact he was several years ahead of me, friendly. I always liked him. He became a teacher and for four years sat as a Green in the Tasmanian Parliament. The school we attended has been the subject of a lot of publicity lately to do with sexual abuse. Two years ago, Basil and his brother Steve came out publicly about their experience of that. I'm writing a book on my school days which Basil read in draft form. There's a sense in which we know each other at the sort of depth that brothers do. The Tarkine campaign to date has been carried out by the Bob Brown Foundation. There were about a dozen of them in their Tulloch camp when I was there. Like the anarchists during the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, they operate by consensus. To avoid argument, no one speaks at their meetings, instead using sign language. On their way to Tulloch, Gordon Cuff and Susie Orlick pick up a batch of vegan Anzac biscuits cooked for the young protesters by an elderly female supporter. If the young protesters were looking for a collective name, they could do worse than the vegan Anzacs. For 145 days straight, they defended the forest before being evicted by police. When I was in camp, they were making wedge-tailed eagle and masked owl costumes, which they wore when they re-entered the Tarkine a few days later, climbing tall trees with shit cans and piss cans and food and sleeping bags, so they have to be found and got out before work can continue. These individuals are easily mocked, but perhaps in 100 years, people will see the vegan Anzacs as a tiny force who gallantly took on overwhelming odds. Perhaps those same people will look at us and see a generation not remembered for anything it achieved, but for what it squandered and lost. The vegan Anzacs have lots of meetings. We're squatting on a floor in a tent and I hear a male voice on the other side say, I'm an older man and I have an older man's bladder. If I'm chained to a piece of machinery and it takes four or five hours for the police to get there, how do I go to the toilet? Without missing a beat, the young woman conducting the meeting says he will be supplied with a nappy. As an older man with an older man's bladder, I take a personal interest in the exchange and see that it will require considerable thought. Finding yourself in the Tasmanian wilderness in winter, chained to a piece of heavy machinery, wearing a wet nap, waiting for the police to come and arrest you, would not be the time to be having second thoughts. We arrived at the entrance to the road being used by the mining company to build their tailings dam at about 8am on Thursday, June the 10th. Gordy couldn't come because it would violate his bail conditions. 
Lenkauf has a grandchild in Sweden and was concerned that the conviction could stop him getting into that country. That left five of us, six if you count the shiny red Sharon that Gordy, ever playful, had bought for us to have a kick with. The Sharon, that subversive, bobbing, bouncing symbol of fun, would play a critical part in the day's drama. We were not to the mouth of the wet, muddy road when a tall man dressed in a dark blue uniform that caused us to initially mistake him for a policeman leapt into our path. Through a radio attached to his kit, he was warning some other party that an intrusion was underway, simultaneously issuing a proclamation that we were trespassing. Then he saw the footy in Aussie's hands. That, he cried, cannot come in here. We continued to advance. The guard went for the ball, but it was in the hands of our best player. Aussie handballed it over the top to Spook coming through on the left and we were through. I was slightly rueful. Had the footy been arrested, I might have had a story that would have galvanised the nation. We entered mixed rainforest, solid walls of leatherwood, sassafras and blackwood trees, pierced here and there by incredibly tall eucalypts. The windy, unsealed road was rough and muddy, the cold air delicious. About two kilometres down the road, we came to a second gate. Here, two security guards and a couple of miners waited. The miners were not physically aggressive, but they did get awfully close, taking mugshots. Here, 73-year-old Paul Coston, who had volunteered to be arrested, took his stand, sitting down on a chair, forcing the police to come and physically remove him as the security guards are not legally empowered to do so. Paul is a former company director of a satellite broadcasting business. Steve Smith stayed so that there would be a witness to what ensued. The remaining four of us advanced. Again, a security man stood in our way, issuing a loud warning, insisting we leave the area, while a young woman from the Bob Brown Foundation insisted just as loudly that we were on public land. We continued our advance. Again, it happened that Ozzy had the footy. Again, the security card went for the ball, and again, Ozzy handballed it to Spook. But the irony was that the artful Sharon had drawn the security guard once more to our most elusive player. The security guard looked like he was training for the days when being a security guard is an Olympic event. He was squat, muscular, maybe 40. He had his hands up like a basketball guard. Aussie, now 70, was giving away 30 years, but he seems as nimble as ever. There's a story about Aussie when he was playing for Penguin on the northwest coast. Two Wynyard players came from either side to collect him. He waited to the last, suddenly withdrew, and the pair knocked each other out. Aussie went left, the guard blocked. Aussie went right, the same. Aussie went far left. The guard skipped across, using his arms to impede him in that annoying way Dylan Grimes does for Richmond, while otherwise being an excellent player. The young woman from the Bob Brown Foundation was shouting, this is an assault, this is an assault. But the sports writer in me thought, this is a contest. Ozzy told me later he did consider doing a blind turn. I would have paid money to see that. Instead, the young woman from the Bob Brown Foundation demanded to see the guard's ID. He was momentarily distracted and Ozzy was through. I could see he was quite invigorated by the sport. I could also see how determined he was. I had not picked him as the sort of person who'd show up at an environmental action. He says his thinking on environmental issues is, quote, 180 degrees from what it used to be. 
Becoming a grandfather seems to have been part of that process. Becoming a grandfather is part of that process for a lot of people. By the time you get to our age, an increasing number of people you know are dead. Your own end is coming like a big full stop. At the same time, you have these little people appearing at your feet. Indigenous cultures around the world say that the principal duty of humans of our age is to provide a sustainable environment for those who follow, just as it will be their duty one day to do the same for those who follow them. That's how the whole system works. Two and a half thousand years ago, Antisthenes, the Greek philosopher, said, states fail when they cannot distinguish fools from serious men. America went perilously close under their last president, and Britain and Australia have followed. We have a government that is utterly indifferent to the terminal damage being done to our major river system, the Murray-Darling, source of sustainable life for eons. This same government pays someone to be a drought envoy and doesn't even bother to require a report from him. My brother Richard's recent book, Toxic, on the Tasmanian salmon farming industry, basically makes the case that the history of the industry represents a wholesale failure in government at every level, legislative, bureaucratic, regulatory. No one has stepped forward to rebut his argument in a detailed or systematic way. The silence is deafening. There's four of us now, Aussie, Spook, Basil and me. Initially, the road is relatively flat and it's a pleasant walk. The boys discuss CO2 levels, which have risen globally over the past 12 months due to wildfires. It had been assumed that COVID would have lowered them. It's interesting to catch up with people after nearly 50 years. Basil's the most obviously changed in us. As a young man, he was quite socially, he says, timid. At some point in his 30s, he made the conscious decision to, quote, step out and say what he was thinking. He walks in the world with an unequivocal tread now. We come into pure rainforest, no eucalypts, and a series of short, sharp hills. Up and down, up and down, it's like day five in the Tour de France. It is now I learn that Spook has run a record 36 Bernie 10s, and Aussie runs every morning. Basil, who walks, quote, everywhere, has calf muscles like knotted wire. I live on top of a steep hill and walk it regularly, so I have some strength in my legs. But as in the Tour de France, it's a question of pace. I drop off the back of the peloton by 10 or 15 metres. The one who notices is the one who always read people well, our Captain Aussie. He drops back and we walk together. We talk about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, about which I know little and he knows plenty. Our goal is the construction site where the wilderness is being bulldozed apart. The entire space of the mining lease, according to Basil, is 280 hectares, the equivalent to 100 Melbourne cricket grounds, maybe more. I want to see the space that has been denuded. We're within about 1.5 kilometres of our goal when the message comes through that the police are on their way. They are remarkably good-tempered when they arrive, considering one has had to come from Strawn about 50 kilometres away. One of them, having heard that a Sharon is on the loose in the Tarkine, arrives wearing a New South Wales State of Origin scarf, pointing to the previous evening's epic thrashing of the Maroons. With them are two young men from the mining company, 
neither is physically aggressive, but when one of them chooses to speak to us, he does so with cold disdain and arresting brevity. He says, quote, We are not doing anything unlawful. You are. That law was made in Parliament. If you want to protest against that law, go and do it in Hobart outside Parliament House, unquote. I'm still thinking about that. This is not a simple issue or not for me. The tailings that will fill this dam will come from the Rosebury mine. My family lived in Rosebury for five years when I was a kid. I married a Rosebury girl. But now we have five grandkids. Spook and Ozzy respond to the young men working for the mining company civilly and well. We're not against the moon. We're not against the mine, they say. We're not against you miners. The company has acknowledged there are other more expensive places where this dam could be sited. Quote, we want it out of the wilderness, says Spook. We aren't arrested, but we are apprehended and ordered to leave. We are prohibited from re-entering a defined area, which is the mining lease plus 10 or so kilometres each way for 14 days. We are then put in police vehicles and transported back past the two security gates to where our cars are. Back at the Tuller camp, there's another meeting. I don't go. The person a writer has to meet after an accumulation of experiences like this day's is him or herself. The hard thinking has begun. Will I go down the Tarkine again? Maybe, maybe not. But participating in the action has impressed upon me the urgency of these matters. I'm reminded yet again of the 2016 report from the World Wildlife Fund for Nature that wildlife populations around the globe have plummeted nearly 70% since 1970. On our watch, as it were. In his football prime, Gordy Cuff was described by a sports journalist as a ball of busyness. He is that in all things. He is now, quote, about getting people down the Tarkine, unquote, and to this end has organised Shane Howard to come next month, COVID providing. Shane wrote, Let the Franklin Flow, the song that helped save the Franklin River, Tasmania's great conservation battle of the early 1980s. Gordy's also got Hazy coming. Hazy is a uni footy club legend. He coached the fourths in which I played. He was an academic, but more to the point, he was the first intellectual I met who brought everything into one. Art, footy, politics, the environment, cricket, books, music. When Hazy, real name Pete Hay, left Tasmania in 1974 to take a position with the Whitlam government in Canberra, it was my great honour to be elected captain coach of the fourths. Later, Hazy published my first book, a collection of poems. Still later, he managed an itinerant cricket team called the Thylacinians, which toured Tasmania for 30 years playing invitation matches. Hazy's coming to the Tarkine with some of his cricketers. I am reliably advised he will be bringing a bat and a ball. The solemn space that is the logging coop with the great gum stands alone would be considerably cheered up by a cricket match. Given the tricky nature of the wicket, the old master can be relied upon to bat first if he wins the toss. So, Martin, thanks a lot for that. That was a really lovely way to, to I guess, get a, a Christmas message out. You can be our queen uh, delivering the, the Christmas <laughs> message for Speakola. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> Excellent. And how is everyone now? Of, the, of that group, have you seen them recently? Oh yeah, I'm having a lot to do with them because um, 
I am writing a book on my school days and that was a school that has been much in the news over the past three or four years and when Basil came out with his brother saying that they'd been sexually abused at the school, that that forced, and he called on other people to speak out and so that that had an effect on me and it had an effect on a number of other people. So, yeah, I speak to him regularly. Gordy Cuff is one of my best Tasmanian friends so we see a lot of one another. We go to the footy, we go to watch Longford or watch the local footy each weekend during the footy season. Aussie and Spook, yeah, no, we're still all all in touch and Aussie and Spook and Gordy are still very much involved in the Tarkine. No, it was just it was just a great thing to do. It was a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> but um, it also had a very serious side to it because it made me, you know, address the realities. I mean, the planet's overpopulated. Our politics is disintegrating. You know, extreme wealth is becoming more and more powerful in, in running countries and... You know, we we got, we have to defend the natural world for the sake of the coming generations. And I'm not an activist, and I'm not by nature a protester, but um, I am a grandfather, and I I, I have I, you know I'm I'm a great I'm fascinated by indigenous cultures and the way you know the way that in indigenous cultures everything connects up because I think everything does connect up, and we 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 have a responsibility to the future generations and. Our political model at the moment is, is failing us. So, so that's where I think we are. And this was just a little thing I did. And it was, you know, my ability to yet again be the club bard, mate, and write it. And now you've been good enough to let me read it. Well, it was my pleasure, Martin. And, and we did love your episode earlier in the year. But I didn't get a – you could tell us the the aftermath. How was the grand final experience? And did you swing with – Christian Petrarca's brilliant five minutes were you a demon suddenly or did you remain a bulldog or what happened torn in two? Totally torn in two. The two clubs in Melbourne I had the most to do with were the Dogs and, and Melbourne but I, 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 yeah, I, I knew whoever won I was going to be happy and I was going to be sad. I love the Dogs and you know Bevo and Bonty's one of the you know one of the beautiful young men I've met through footy and so I would I know a lot of their supporters. They've got some great supporters, the dogs. So, you know, it would have been marvellous for them. And I do think the manner of the defeat will hurt them a lot because in the end it was just a was just a blitzkrieg. But, yeah, you know, I had to be happy for Melbourne. I, I, I do claim, mate, to be the first person in the Melbourne media to say that Max Gorn should be captain of Melbourne. I said on SEN one day with uh, Andy Murray and Bob, Bob Murphy and us, I said, I reckon Max Gorn can be to Melbourne what Bob Murphy was to the dogs, and I think he was. Petrarca's just a joy to watch. He's a, he's a Formula One racing car of a footballer. Power, agility, you know, brilliant kick. Love watching him. Uh, Clayton Oliver, he's just a bubbling river of a footballer. The ball just keeps surfacing and resurfacing in his hands. Um, really like the way Melbourne play. Really like the architecture of the side. That's the thing I think Goodwin has done best. He reminds me of Blight. He's an old Blight player. I think he's got a bit of Blight about him as coach. Um, and it was just an astonishing game, the grand final. You know, um, it was like um, it was like seeing a, a butterfly emerge. You know, the go, start Melbourne start the game as a caterpillar and go, you know, into the chrysalis, and then all of a sudden this beautiful creature comes out and just takes off. It was. I think it was an awesome. It was an awesome display of the game, and that's what I love. I, I love footy as, you know, I love footy as art. And 
I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful game for that reason, but very sad for the dogs. Well, thanks so much, Martin. I'm, he- I'm hopefully heading down to Tasmania over Christmas. If I'm in your neck, I'll knock on your door and we can catch up. Yeah, always, mate. Always. Thanks, mate. See ya. Bye. Merry Christmas. Same to you. Merry Christmas. Well, that's it for the year. It may be that I do a little supplemental episode, a bit like this one, really, where I put up an interview that I did with Triple R on the grapevine about the best speeches for the year. That might go up here as well if I get their permission. But basically, there'll be no more interviews or standard speakola podcast episodes for the year. So thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to give us some Christmas support, patreon.com forward slash speakola or speakola.com forward slash donate. Look in the show notes. Thank you, Martin Flanagan. Loved your piece. What a writer you are and a real hero for me, really, for, for most of my writing life, and uh, which is most of my life. So thank you. And it's been a, a pleasure and a privilege to get to know you over these last few years. Thank you to Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados and the podcast reader. Both would make good gifts this Christmas time. Thank you to all my podcast guests, again, acknowledged at the front of this special episode. And thanks to you, the speech fan, listener. Have a great Christmas and New Year period. Soak up some sun if you're in Australia. Make a snowman if you're not. And see you in 2022.